Welcome back to another episode. Uh, hi, hello. Um, this one is a, an especial lazy one. <laughs> no, it's not a lazy one. It's more of a, I, I, you know, don't sell yourself short like that. It's actually, uh, it's not lazy. It's uh, informative. It's uh, historical. <laughs> right. It's almost like the, from the archives. From the archives, exactly. Uh, it's just kind of a special episode. It's a little bit different. Uh, you, do you want to explain what we're, what we're doing today? Yeah, we're just recording a bit of an intro, but it's actually going to be just an interview uh, I did with Mike Davis in... Um, Actually, it was late October 2013, so it was like nine years ago. I did it for a Russian magazine. It was actually for print, so it's not the best quality. It was like a Skype recording. It's it's all right. You can listen. And uh, just because, I guess, Mike Davis um, sort of popped up in the news because he died, I, I kind of remember that I even did it. Yeah. Just to pay our respects, I guess, I wanted to, to publish it because I, I re-listened to parts of it, obviously. And uh, yeah, and he was write about pretty much everything <laughs> and it only got worse that's yeah. uh, that's the gist what was the what was the magazine that you that you did the interview for i uh, it, it was called uh, it doesn't exist anymore it was called prime <laughs> actually when the, the name would be like uh, triggering right now if it existed <laughs> it, it it's, uh, was a magazine published in russian in in moscow but it was called in english the title was prime russia magazine yeah and uh, yeah, and it was like a weird thing. I can't remember. Was it like bi-monthly or maybe even once every three months? Mm-hmm. But I think it took its inspiration from Lapham's Quarterly. Yeah. Lapham's Quarterly might still exist though, right? Because yeah. it's, you I, I, know. I, th- I actually don't know. It's I'm not question. sure either. I Could only be. bought but it, it sort like of once tried, or like twice. It was a, kind of a highbrow, a very highbrow, or try to be highbrow No, I No, magazine. no, not try no? to. It's, I think it's like highbrow trying to be accessible. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. It actually didn't try to be highbrow. It tried to to talk about sort of like fairly complex and different like cultural things and did, write about different books. And it's not it wasn't dry or academic. At least it tried not to be. And um, yeah, so it, it was um, supposedly like kind of like an educational project. What, a really what, bizarre one. What was the? Who do you think was the audience for the magazine? Because because it was mm, a, it was a very. I'll small. tell you. I actually have this. Uh, wait a second. Um, to, 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 let me let me find something. Because it had kind of like a logo, um, saying something. Okay, I'll just re- say it how I remember. But it basically something like a subtitle of a Prime Russia magazine was that it's like um, some like an urban magazine about things that bother a thinking man today. <laughs> something like this. Well, a lot a of man, bo- oh, woman. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of things bother thinking like, men and women. Yeah, exactly. Oh. So, <laughs> including like what's you know uh, what to eat for dinner. Um, food actually worry issue about food, but it would like let's say if there would be a whole issue, it was like thematic. Actually, gotcha. like like say uh, the interview I did with Mike Davis, it was for the issue called poverty, or I think there was an issue called food, but it would be not like. It would be literally about something like the future of food, and yeah. they would look into the new. I, t- I talked to some other guy for them too, like talked about like the the future of protein is actually insects. Yeah, I remember you know? that. I remember you did that interview. I mean, this is when we lived in we lived in Santa Monica back then. Yeah, I think so. I, I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Or sometimes they would do like a whole issue with just book reviews, which is kind of cool. I, I did those too. Um, yeah, the, the audience, from what I understand, it's definitely very like kind of maybe Moscow, Saint Petersburg audience. Yeah. And then there are people maybe Russians who live abroad from what I understood because the way they set it up you could have a subscription mm-hmm. and they will get you the magazine and it was like a really fancy print magazine and that's what made it all weird because 
like the money like okay the guys who were doing that they were former afisha people yeah. and afisha was you actually worked with them a little bit yeah. just with the kind of so it was like a lifestyle and travel house. magazine that 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 like, but it was smart. It was, was smart, like and, it, and it launched a lot of different uh, other uh, careers, basically journalism careers and and kind of Russian liberal media careers, right? Like people went through it and then went on to do a right. lot of other, like, more interesting in, in, things. In short, I think uh, I mean, I feel she became many different things, and it was like considered like whatever hipster or like you can call it different things. But from what I I understood, like sociologically speaking, it was one of the first, and then pretty much the only places because later it was actually it's now i think almost not not functional uh where like a a person with um humanity so kind of like liberal arts type of thing education could have a decent job and also like do something interesting and make money yeah because it was sponsored as anything interesting in russia by an oligarch yeah so it was like um you know like a special sort of fairly as far as those things go like kind of like very free thinking workplace i yeah. think pretty cha- chaotic from what i understand it wasn't like any specific ideology or anything like that from what i understood yeah or there, I mean, there like a there was like it's funny it's like the the end of putin's sort of um second term right and at the beginning of medvedev's uh third term but already that was but, but it was like the the, it, the that magazine afisha was like this a symbol of like Putin's stability and prosperity and, prosperity. and, prosperity and like inc- and and liberalism. Yeah, and liberalism and integration into the into the West into glo- into a kind of a global society because suddenly Russians especially like urban you know urban Russian professionals you know had a, a, a lot of money and the the ruble was actually uh, you know had a, a lot of purchasing power in terms of internationally right. you know, compared to what, what it is now and what that it was later true, yeah. and then and and so people had a lot of money had money to spend. And they could go abroad, and this is, and and so it catered to this yeah, new but, kind of. But you know, when yeah. when you talk like that, it's like contradicts to what I usually try to say. It's like we're still a tiny minority of people, so it's like culturally, it it made a difference because culturally, it's the truth at yeah. all times. The minority, the people who like produce anything, or of course it was a minority, but it was like, but it was a symbol of something to aspire to, and there was like there was some truth, there was some truth behind it in the sense that there was this moment of sort of even you know the 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 ruble was was had had it was like strong the economy was doing well i don't know there was just everything could only get better and better and better there was like a kind of a a feeling of optimism and things like that that's it was embodied in it It it, that was my sense of it when i you know kind of worked for it and and they had was by shogard offshoot of afisha yeah i think so yeah i mean kind of i mean the people who worked for bashogard which is another magazine that i worked for i think were Big a lot city, of them meaning. yeah a lot of them kind of came from afisha yeah. right but i mean but they just were extremely well funded they paid really well they paid right. they paid they they would like so even when i left russia i maintained contact with, with some of the editors there and because i was in america we living in la or even in victorville they would send me to you know to places but that was an offshoot not of a original afisha yeah. but like afisha world which is like a separate that's ah, the thing that's, right. that's the thing they had right. like right. they were so I guess successful and well funded that they had different uh, subsidiary and they, magazines and like, they had a lo- they basically had like they were also the Russian version of the Lonely Planet so they had these guides that people right, yes. that people would buy so there was like it's a very, it was a very it was a very um, profitable very good business and they had a, mo- a lot of money to bur- a lot of money to burn and so they paid me to travel and go you know like hunt down peyote in Mexico and things like right. that and, and I uh, remember you didn't like 
or I think you went to Jamaica. I went to Jamaica. You were so like you always were complaining about all this. because well, I was like, now a, thinking back, it's like I had a pretty sweet gig. Well, I mean, it wasn't. It's not like it. It, it, it was like a. It, it, yeah, they they. It, it wasn't like a huge amount of money, but they paid for the travel and stuff. I know. And I was in such a weird place. Like I was in Victorville, basically, completely. You know, like uh, uh, you know. Uh, Sitting on and on, 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 uh, high on meth a lot of the times, I was like in a pretty. I was completely, you know, just this weird hole. I was trying to like write about Victorville. I was doing actually Nobody researching, also trying to figure out like what America and is I was about. Like, and, I, and it was, I felt like writing for the Russian, my Russian magazine was like dragging me back into the sort of the Russian, my kind of my Russia phase, rather than trying to figure out what I'm doing here in America. But and, it like, was true, and also they were all about if they sent you, like, say, to Vegas, from what I remember, because yeah. I would like look then at the Russian version, because you, Russia, Yasha would write in English, and they would just translate it. Yeah. And then I'm like, they actually want this, like a beat yeah. even if uh, even if it's grungy image of America that is sort cool. of it's like I mean, they're, they're trying to try, they're trying to sell basically um, tourism tourism I mean it's a tourism magazine yeah, right? even so if it's, they yeah, want yeah. a bit of a flavor of like kind of like gonzo and I'm like okay yeah I mean I understand <laughs> I Yasha is in Victoria trying to get to the bottom of like the American collapse truly <laughs> yeah. and they like want is like is uh, Vegas dirty I and want, cool? they want me to go and you know do some do some coke uh, and go and <laughs> To, to some strip clubs uh, in Vegas and, and you know and like yeah. get the gritty and so like so to create this aura of of coolness and danger in this really shitty town so yeah so but but they were they were, they were good people in the sense that they uh, gave uh, they gave writers a lot of freedom you know um, you could you could be in terms of just what you wanted to write about so they gave me almost like a you know uh um, totally, total, total freedom of what I wanted to write about, just as long as I went to like the location and and it kind of it it, it vibed with their you know travel travel uh, making travel sexy and cool. So right, <laughs> um, that's basically travel. It's basically a travel travel writing, um, glorified travel writing. But yeah, but so. So th- those guys came out of that world, right? Yeah, that, that but, but again, that, yeah. that was an offshoot. And the yeah. original I feature that I think it only lasted for a bit over a decade, like like most kind of like media projects in Russia. Yeah, that was, it wasn't just about travel. It was about like, like different cultural trends, like weird, like kind of pop popular anthropology, music reviews. I'm not sure because that's the thing. I'm kind of almost like saying how cool it was from what I understand. People really yeah. lo- loved it. But I, I actually never read it. Maybe yeah. I had it once just because somehow thick I like I think I was about to go to Iran when it was really hot I was kind of I kind of missed actually yeah. the Fisher years yeah. to some degree and then and then before that when it was I don't know somehow I somehow I, I, I missed that yeah, yeah. maybe because I was also when I was in Moscow I was kind of hanging out with you yeah and and like exile was clearly oh that's the thing was definitely cooler than a Fisher in my head <laughs> exactly. and it was yeah because those people no I have to like as a cultural critique like a future people, the Russians were like, "Oh, look at the kind of like cool Western stuff." Yeah. No, it was like it was totally fetishizing, fetishizing yeah. um, internet tourism and the West and um, and like yeah. all the cool stuff that you could see around the world and. You know, and yeah, you know. and I was, I guess, slightly mentally in a different headspace. Oh wait, it was that successful that they even had a annual Afisha music festival. Yes, that's right. Huge, uh, you know. If anything, <laughs> no, by Russian standards, like no, the, the most deal. important it one. It's deal. like Coachella of Moscow. Yeah, it was Afisha was like the brand and of, that the, of the of the still kept late going years, until yeah. basically the war. Yeah. That kept going. I think not not anymore. I believe yeah. this this August. I don't think they had it. 
It, not, I'm not, no I'm not actually, you know there. what? I'm not sure. Mm. I need to check. What if it still keeps going? Come, who would come there to play? Yeah. It would just be like Russian bands. Right. Basically. Maybe Russian bands. I need to check. I don't know. But anyway, my point is it was like a really big media kind of conglomerate. <laughs> enterprise yeah, yeah. conglomerate. Yeah. Uh, and okay. And the guys, uh, two guys who were running this prime Russian magazines, they were the former editors. One of them was like, I think literary critic and the other was, I think music. And it's a bit shady because I mean, like a lot of things, it's so funny if you know a bit of uh, like, uh, the, the backstage. So I once visited them when I was visiting Moscow. Uh, I went to their office, I think, to pick, to either get money or something like this. And I realized that the address they were giving me, this is like a Russian Czech bank. Yeah. Um, and I'm like walking to the bank and uh, yeah, and there's like a little kind of like whatever on the first floor of that bank, like you something like <laughs> turn to the left and walk, walk, walk in the long hall and here it is. <laughs> This is the what do you call that an office? Yeah, I mean, so they basically had like the the magazine had its like little office with yeah, inside like the bank offices. Yeah, yeah, the the prime Russian headquarters <laughs> inside the Russian Czech bank. I'm like, this is weird, and I like, I guess I was not curious enough to know what's going on. And then I asked the editor, "Why are you here?" And he said, "Oh, don't you know? Like the investor, the owner of this magazine is actually the owner of the Russian Czech bank." <laughs> so this is. So this there's like, like some kind direct, of some, yeah 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 and uh, and from what I understood it was like a purely I don't think it made any money or maybe a little bit based like on a vanity project, subscription yeah. I think the subscription was definitely like paid and some people would subscribe but I I, I don't think yeah I don't there's think no it way really a magazine made like that can make money no it yeah, didn't make yeah. money and uh, it was like yeah like I I guess the vanity project is one way to call it yeah but what what benefit so the the, the banker guy whose name is um roman popov roman popov like so it was just like he was into it he just wanted to or he saw it as like some kind of like it helped us with his reputation or just it was a purely vanity thing yeah maybe like now thinking the way you know how things are informal in russia uh he probably liked either that the guy Lev and Maxim, the, the both yeah. guys who were who were basically running the magazine and i don't know he wanted yeah, maybe he wanted also to be part of something he cool, considered yeah. cool yeah. and uh, sort of, um, I don't know, progressive. Because uh, now thinking about it, yeah, they were definitely vaguely left-wing, which is unheard of for your generation of Russians, yeah. um, like Moscow Russians. That was, I mean, that was the cool part about the magazine, I think, is that they had yeah, a kind of vaguely left-wing politics, which is what it was highly Yeah, unusual. and then I sort of realized one of them, um, uh, he was, I guess, my editor, he was not vaguely left-wing. He turned out to be basically kind of Lenin, a closeted Leninist, <laughs> which is, again, unheard of for a That's man around amazing, 40 yeah. in Moscow. You know, that generation yeah. tend to be very, like, ultra-liberal. Yeah. Anyway, because he wrote a few years ago a, a whole huge biography of Lenin. Amazing, yeah. Yeah. It was supposed to be, like, a new synthesis of his of his, of his life Um, I don't or? know. I think it's, like, was supposed to be... It's hard to say a synthesis. They had, like... I guess an original approach to at least writing a biography of Lenin, because others, I don't think everyone did what he did. He not only read, obviously, all the, whatever, what is it, 55? Uh, volumes? Uh, volumes, I think it's 55 volumes of, of collective volumes of Lenin, which is like, I know other biographers, I'm, I'm pretty sure probably did as well. But he decided he traveled, he followed basically Lenin's, tra Lenin's travel path, because Lenin both is an exile and then is a kind of... European, what do you call it, <laughs> kind of revolutionary. And also he was an avid hiker on top of just being an exile revolutionary. So there were so many like, mm -hmm. I think through the books you could trace his travel path. So he did that 
and from what I understand, that's one of the pitch for the book because how he kind of that's actually a great got uh, around. That would be a great way, actually, like a, a tour to sell. You know, like to go. Do, yeah, do like, if he, if that was maybe a bit more. Oh, we can get in touch with him more industrious. You like okay, <laughs> he knows all the paths. Yeah, we know people maybe Jacobin readers who want to follow that. <laughs> well, this is only for Marxists with a deep pocketbooks because this is like a highly personalized. It's like a no, but that's going to yeah. be expensive. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you're hitting with some pretty expensive locations, first yeah, of all. Yeah, you go to and Switzerland. Then, and then you got to go to some like pretty far away places too. So yeah, Siberia. Yeah. No. It's, anyway, so yeah. there's that. My, but but I, I just to finish the not that cl- not that vaguely left wing. Yeah, he's a, super left wing. Yeah. I'm, well, I mean, the magazine mm-hmm. wasn't didn't really reflect that necessarily. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think they more kind of was more more or less. But again, it was like owned by a banker and. And of course, and, but the funny thing about this bank is that, like, um, is that it, it was actually, funnily enough, it it made headlines. Like it was like you know, uh, I mean, no one really knew who the bank was or who cared really about you know the, the name of this uh-huh. bank or the name of the bank. But this bank and the and the guy who funded you this magazine, this magazine that you did this interview for with Mike Davis, was like in the news in a huge uh-huh. way uh, because in this very very shady in this very 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 shady kind of. Um, deal that no one really knows like the the details of it, it turned out that this bank in the, in that has like an a, a office in in Russia but also an office in the Czech Republic mm-hmm. um and has license in the Czech Republic g- gave a loan to 10 million dollars or more no more and more i think like um i'm looking at the i'm looking I at thought- that 10 million or a bit more I it was even more than that but you, you i haven't looked at it in a long time but yeah but a big loan basically financing the the uh the election campaign of uh, the national front of in in france <laughs> um and so and so like and that was this bank was part of like the trail that was then used to prove that you know marie le pen um you know is like banked by the kremlin uh, mm-hmm. bank being bankrolled by the Kremlin and there's some truth to it because I think there was just it's, it was a weird deal and I think you know the speculation was that he was actually forced to kind of give that loan and basically lost money on it and like never got the money back and so and then ultimately the bank I think closed and was forced to close but so this there's a very sordid kind of shady history behind this that's connected to this magazine <laughs> of yeah. like you know of the the tentacles of the Kremlin you know reaching financing the the global far right you know is is the is the narrative likes to call it you know um, <laughs> no um, I think like doesn't ten million sound not like enough almost yeah I think they look think I'm looking more. at this one thing it's a, it's like the funding when it initially started the sum of eleven million quickly increased to forty nine million U S dollars okay maybe it's then it makes sense and he, from what we understood he never saw the money back yeah but anyway so. So, and uh, the magazine closed in something like um, spring 2016. So my I, collaboration maybe lasted. For, I actually like this. I don't know, it's like this interview with, interview with Mike, Mike Davis is is uh, is part of your is part of the uh, uh, big like Kremlin plot to um, foist <laughs> uh, to basically to um, to undo a sort of liberal consensus and to destabilize uh, Western societies by introducing radical ideas into the Yeah, in fact, yeah, it's part of the, the Ra- uh, Ruski Mir. Yeah. So Mike Davis is, yeah. But he's like unwittingly yeah, participating unwittingly, in that. I mean, it, but Putin is helping, you know, get his message out. <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah. Wow, that's wild, right? It is pretty wild, actually. <laughs> Through Mike Davis and his radical like Marxism, Putin is trying to get his message out. <laughs> his message. <laughs> 
Well, because Mark Davis is, critiques, you know, uh, capitalism and critiques uh, America and critiques sort of liberalism and yeah. critiques all these things, right? She does. Which she is does. very much in line with what Putin wants to do. You know, he and wants IMF to... and neoliberal oh, sort of yeah. austerity. Yeah, all of that. But um, okay, before you get to listen to that interview. Uh, keep in mind, so it was nine years ago. <laughs> I somehow sound very cheaper. I think I was probably more cheaper and like naive. And um, when I was listening to parts of it, it was weird because um, clearly the issue is like the issue of the magazine is poverty, and that's what we're supposed to talk about. And I feel like I sound inappropriately cheaper. <laughs> you should now. When you talk like, about poor people, you need to be a lot more just uh, somber. No, <laughs> as, as like you're at a funeral, basically. Yeah, but why? You know, I don't know. I, I, that's one thing I noticed. <laughs> and other things I noticed. I actually wonder. Um, I don't know what you would think about it, Yash. It's. Um, would you seriously, I couldn't tell if I was like ironic using that or I really meant it and then I'm just like, it's the state of mind I was. I constantly, I know, I, I think maybe I unironically use like developing world, first world countries, third world countries, mm. all these like terms. I actually first learned in my, um, what is it, in my economic undergraduate program yeah. in Moscow State University where it was definitely like talked about with a straight face. And uh, yeah. now I would feel like awkward. I, I don't think I would talk like that because because yeah because these terms well I mean it's okay it's like so I mean I think first of all I think a lot of people still don't even realize that you know how loaded some of these terms are because right? they and, do and sound and loaded to me now they do right yeah yeah, yeah. I think uh, it's funny yeah maybe they they it's just funny that didn't he wouldn't because that he didn't like not just correct you but like talk about that this you know because that's part of part well, of what poverty's say, about I yeah. think he's just um, first of all I think he's like seems like a really great and like a polite person mm-hmm. not like trying to be yeah I'm yeah. clearly a foreigner too so it's like he's actually super polite and on top of it I think he probably once would respond something like so called third countries yeah. he would. Yeah. say he would refer to it similarly to me but if i said that yeah. but he clearly probably his heart wasn't in it again i probably didn't fully know that there's like an ideological a very uh, again that they're loaded and there's like a direct ideological component these are ideological terms actually yeah. yeah like a developing nation yeah yeah because it's really weird again can you believe it so i was studying in, in my undergraduate something like t- what 2006 2010 or mm-hmm. almost 11 anyway in um in moscow and so you would think that you know, this is like Putin, Putin years already, interest yeah. generally, like they, there should be something there that would indicate that we're in this like neo-colonialism world with American imperialism, like trying to, <laughs> trying to do evil things in the world. And no, first of all, not only nothing from that angle, but it seems to be most of my economics and even like worlds, I don't know in what word politics classes, they were taught by total like liberals, kind of yeah. like I would say right-wing liberals, totally anti-Soviet, I would say maybe like definitely pro-American and and the terms themselves that were kind of weird yeah they were like I knew where the third world comes from that there was first world kind of second world Soviet Union in yes. a way and then there was like the third kind of like between. <laughs> yeah we're fighting for their souls <laughs> Like I, I knew, like the it's the, undec- the undecideds, yeah, <laughs> undecideds. But somehow it was like again, I knew kind of on paper. It was, but the way it was still used, it was very. Um, but I hear, but I I see people, you know, even on like I don't know whatever the, in the progressive world and like the left world. I mean, people use that term third world. It's become synonymous with essentially this sort of the, this kind of just poverty. Because I mean, yeah, right? I mean, look, yeah, like uh, basically uh, nations that are I don't know. Uh, 
It's it's funny, like because there is, I, you know, there's the the kind of the I guess the left left wing kind of academic term for the countries like that is the global south, which is also kind of I, I don't know I not find, great either. Actually. I find it a kind right. of strange because it's I mean, but there's like it's it's all these euphemisms, you know, all these euphemisms. It's like well, it's like the former, you know, basically countries that have been robbed or countries that have been pillaged, you know, colonial uh, countries that have been under colonialism or like are continue to be on colonialism or like basically weak countries that have, uh, small countries. I mean, there's like, uh, there's all yeah, sorts of ways. Yeah, but you know, in terms of, yeah. uh, I guess I, I couldn't like articulate it well, you know, I, I'm from Moscow and that was happening in Moscow, my education. I think it is still weird um, to have that experience there because all this like concept of I don't remember where they even um, where they put Russia back yes. in the day and because I can't remember I don't think it was like developed nations even no, because yeah. it, no even like one we were st- sitting in Moscow like uh, <laughs> our um, classroom windows looking at Kremlin yeah. and we were kind of like I think maybe div- I, I you know I can't remember exactly I, if I find maybe some of my notebooks but my point is that if you went into the real kind of history, you have to then talk about collapse of Soviet Union. What was the Soviet Union about, like geopolitically and yeah. economically, and then where where Russia remained, like found itself after the collapse. Like yeah. what was going on, and none of that. Wow, well, yeah, that's <laughs> was, like that's your economics kinda, education. Yeah, yeah, it was really weird. It was like very neoliberal, obviously without me knowing the word neoliberal and yeah. without knowing it's neoliberal. So anyway, I don't I don't know if anyone asks for for this information but I found it kind of interesting to even yeah. remem- no, it's remember funny. this yeah. I mean yeah it's like the this is what you're always ta- talking about it's like you're you live yeah, learning about basically learning a, that getting like an economics degree in, 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 in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union and basically being being just brainwashed with, yeah, but basically like what the dominant line in Russia was at the, during Putin's term you know second term when you were when like you were going to school education yeah, it's like it's all just about. like it's basically like neoliberal orthodoxy yeah, like yeah, hardcore yeah. as if there's yeah and it was nothing else it's like you studied Marx but it's like part of history it's not even like relevant it was just like one of the ideas back in the day and communism was like a thing that happened with and and, and, and failed and failed but I didn't yeah. know yeah, like because it can't work it, yeah. you just have to understand because I know that are like cool now I, I meet like cool young people who like very like savvy and aware of different uh, political ideologies and just yeah. generally that there's some anyway very aware in comparison to me being like 20 i'm like what how is it possible yeah. i was not only i think i wasn't aware that they were like living marxist or that's something you could like genuinely i mean even with all the faults whatever some would like be living i yeah. I, I had no idea living yeah. there I mean, like, you know, growing up around, like, Lenin statues, or, like, Marx, yeah. like, all this, like, names after the revolutionary, like, I, I lived fairly close by to Kropotkin um, <laughs> metro station, yet yeah, nothing, like, yeah. nothing at all. And this is the irony of that place. I think it's kind of sad. So I was very both ignorant um, and uh, kind of brainwashed. As you said, yeah. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I bet you this interview is going to be. People are going to like this interview. I, ah, I, I, no, I but that's it. It's fairly like straightforward. Uh, and it was, I think, after I kind of realized what <laughs> a bit more was going on. Yeah. I, I, um, yeah. One more thing. Do you want to quickly talk about Mike Davis? Can I introduce him? I mean, I, I think people. I mean, I don't sound like I'm like an authority on Mike Davis. I don't know. I think people know who Mike Davis is. People who listen to us, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, it's it's not. Um, yeah, but they probably would listen I mean, because they know. <laughs> I don't know what I could say about Mike Davis that people can't find out for themselves yeah. easier. I mean, I I think I learned about Mike Davis pretty late because I I don't know. I, I my sense of it is a lot of people who get into him get into him probably you know read some of his 
books in college. Why and, I didn't? Ah, because it wasn't part of your. Yeah, yeah, and I wasn't like I wasn't really political. That I began to be kind of political in college, but I wasn't like you know reading political books and mm -hmm. you know again like as a Soviet immigrant immigrant in America, it's like I was kind of I came to you know my politics came much later. So, you know, like, yeah, I'm, I also, I'm a little bit, I watch, I see like, you know, 20 year olds being all like communists and stuff now and like being all aware of, of some of the political, political history and being politicized to me is, is, is it, to me, it's, is, it seems kind of, I don't know, strange because I, I, at that age was not, you know, politicized at all. I guess I was just, you know, I had like a lack of politics or some kind of, some kind of innate politics. So I, I, I learned, I, I only came, so I didn't get in touch. I didn't really come across him in college or read him. So I only came across him when I actually, I heard his name, but I never, um, um, I, I think I, the first time I read his book was when I really, when I came back to the States in 2009, you know, City of Quartz when I was living in LA and in Victorville, it, it fit in with my interest in like, you know, Southern California politics and the creation of California and sort of, and, and the create and how generally the, the sort of Western um, you know, or American civilization, and in particular, sort of California and sort of the, the Western speculative bubbles that created uh, America, and, and especially for sort of this frontier America, how they came about. And because I kind of saw it very firsthand, I saw it in a town called Victorville out in the Mojave Desert, how it was literally being built from nothing. You know, in these in these um, successive speculative real estate booms and uh, which one I kind of saw the aftermath of after the, after the financial you know, crash of uh, 2008. And so, you know, I was, I, I, I was interested in, I, I got to know some his work just through my own, you know, journalistic and historical interests. And so then I read some of his other stuff. I skimmed through some of this planet of the slums and um, I mean, the, yeah, me the, the, the late Victorian holocausts. I, you know, I read some of that stuff and then I read a bunch of his, Articles. I mean, one of the interesting things I think pretty early on. I don't remember when he wrote the article, but it was mm -hmm. pretty early uh, about like how wildfires and stuff like that, and how basically the wildfires that are seeming seem to happen with increasing frequency in California and like burn, you know, Malibu all the time mm -hmm. are actually like these man, basically man-made um, phenomena because uh, because of the growth of real estate, again, how everything in California and in America and in the West in particular is tied to real estate development and, and building, you know, things and people like basically colonizing every, every, every nook and cranny of the natural landscape, even places where they shouldn't be building. And some of those places include like places like Malibu or other kind of canyons in the in, in hills in California, mm -hmm. which just naturally need to burn every couple every couple of years that's just a natural part of the ecosystem because all these shrubs get accumulated and it gets really hot and dry there and then the wind starts to blow and you know lightning can set set it off it's like a natural you know it's a natural thing and so by by preventing all these fires you know uh, by because all these people want to live there and suddenly there's this new ideology of like we have to stop all fires from ever happening you know wildfires from ever happening and so you stop uh, you, what you do is you, uh, by, uh, you, by not, not allowing this, this ecosystem to burn once in a while, you, you accumulate essentially, um, fuel in the form of these sort of dry shrubs mm -hmm. and, 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 and dried, you know, little like tree trees and things like that and, and matter that accumulates. And so you build up, you know, years and years and years 
of fuel that should be burned off in smaller files, fires every year. You burn, you build them up for years and years, and then when it finally does ignite, it just, it just, it turns into a furnace that burns everything in its path, and it's, you know, and so, and so it was kind of an interesting. I don't know. I, I, I remember reading that, and it had a, kind of a big effect on me. Just, just again, how everything, how what we think is are these natural uh, how how the how, what we think of as, as disasters right um issue that should be stopped and are horrible you know are actually i don't know like man-made and um are not disasters after all it's just that we shouldn't be living it and building houses especially multi-million dollar mansions you know in, in malibu that makes sense yeah and so i i like the stuff and i and then i'd also like the stuff i don't know i know there's like a bunch of just sort of people who are really mike davis kind of i don't know like huge ultra fans and i think he, uh, well uh, rightly so i feel like he was right about everything yeah, I just, he's a he's a he's yeah yeah he's actually a, just right before his um death um i recently found um a book of his um in the uh, i think it was um this uh, free what do you call it library in the street yeah <laughs> and i picked it up it's called the monster at our door Mm. So it's from 2005, if anything, if anyone wants to like confirm that he was like a real prophet. And so it's called The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu. And he was predicting like a huge pandemic coming mm, because of his research into uh, the, um, the kind of the previous smaller, more confined, kind of almost like Asian pandemic. I don't know. Uh, the SARS, I think, I think mm-hmm. SARS was like a big, um, yes. was a big, I, I wonder if that was inspired by SARS. I think it's yeah. inspired by because, SARS. Uh, because SARS is basically a kind of a pre-COVID that like almost broke out internationally, but, yeah, but, it, but it was localized. I mean, it was yeah. con- more confined geographically yes. speaking. Yeah. So anyway, but, uh, so if anyone kind of yeah. <laughs> want to pick that one now, but yeah won't make you feel better let's put it this way i'm all for like being in awe of guys like like mike davis but the problem is that they have no power yeah. so he writes like a book like this you would think oh this is very <laughs> uh valuable information <laughs> for someone to see who is close to yeah. policy uh making or anything no one cared no i mean no. it's it's like it's yeah it's like uh because you, you can have all the information is I mean, I don't know that that kind of this this you know this slogan. Uh, he knew that he he knew about the power, him. but like yeah. how you get that. No, no, I mean, to I mean, I think he'd be away. He'd, he'd be he'd be the first one to probably admit, and I'm sure you know. This is only, I mean, how can you not that like information is information. You 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 need to be able to act on information, and so you, and you can't really act on that information without some kind of, um, you know, organized political movements or uh, organization you know as uh, right. basically so you need organization to act on information and if you're just a you know for just um these sort of atomized nodes sitting in our homes yeah. you know yeah. and reading these books and we might they might be you know enlightening and, and amazing and you know like and inspire us and and help us understand what's going on in the world you know you're just you're still sitting alone yeah uh and so while you know actually there are the a lot of or- burning <laughs> and there, there are a lot of organized forces that are extremely well organized you know it's particularly basically corporations are extremely well organized entities that that not only have information at their at their fingertips they have resources and they have the will to sort of carry it out and the and the structure to carry out the kind of what they want, you know, the world. Yeah, and to they be have like. the and willpower so, to suppress information they don't like. Yeah, and so, and even, and even they don't have to suppress it because you, if you have information without organization, it's, it's like, right. you know. Well, this is a great slogan: yeah. information without organization. Yeah, it's a, to actually, describe actually, what's yeah, going on. Yeah, it actually breeds, I think, cynicism and re- resignation. You know, because, 
because just nihilism too. Nihil- it's like I'm I mean, it's like, pretty nihilistic. It's now. like you know, you know, you know. Speaking of like wildfires and Mike Davis and and and, and like lack of information and you know, you know how the internet was supposed to because it brought information to everybody and it was information is so accessible to everyone, which you know made information much more accessible, which is true. You know, but it it gave people no power. In fact, it almost f- feels like we've rolled back, and like people are less powerful now. Even though they have accidental information, they can like spout off their opinions, you know, constantly, you know, and like criticize the powerful, you know, while it doesn't actually do anything. It's like, like uh, in particular after the big fires, uh, like actually during the pandemic, during the lockdowns, there were these you know big fires in California. You know, mm-hmm. everyone had like closed their windows. Everyone got all these uh, air, air, you know, air filters and purifiers because it was just so bad here. Um, all these uh, news organizations, you know, New York Times, LA Times, you know, the San Francisco Chronicle, they started rolling out these dashboards where you literally can watch in oh, real time, me, yeah, right. in, in real time, wildfires as they happen, you know, it's like in, in this sort of um, slightly abstracted, you know, like whatever Google map, you know, a little widget that you can go to and like, you can see how much it's been contained, you know, where the border is, you know, how much is expanded, like, how is it shifting? And it's like, is this is, I mean, it like epitomized to me, like this idea of like organi- information without organization is like, it breeds just total, you know, yeah, nihilism is because you're sitting at home and you have this, like this, the data that basically only like the most powerful, you know, corporations or the most powerful militaries in the world could have, like essentially live data of, of what's happening, you know, like somewhere in a remote forest and you can watch it, you know, uh, from your home. And like, and so what? <laughs> You're just watching the word, world burn, you know, on the screen with this information and it like doesn't do anything. Like, so what? You know, it, it, it changes nothing. And so, and, and so it's like, yeah. Yeah, it's just it's uh, like information without organization and without implementation, yeah. <laughs> a possibility of implementation. And I'm sure that you know Mike Davis would be the first one to talk about this. And it's you know, kind we of, should it's like obvious. coin something like no information without organization. Yeah, it's like it's unless until you have organization, you get no information. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but I don't want it. Exactly. Not no. that like I don't want it. Don't give but it I, to I me. Actually, I mean, look, this is like a you know, this is like an ethical, not an ethical, but like a spiritual almost uh, fucking conflict that I have inside me all the time and you know I, I I complain about it to you all the time is that like you know as like as a journalist or like some kind of historian or some kind of as, as a person who wants to write and understand the world and sort of you know um, like and, and write about it I have this constant back and forth it's like what's the point it's like I can put out all this stuff you know I can but because there's no organization and I'm not part of any kind of organization uh, and there isn't really any organization that can do anything like it just it feels so meaningless to do it and pointless, you know. Um, and there's a kind of for posterity, uh, baby. It is for posterity, but but like it's just a it's just it's this constant thing that you have to deal with because it's just the reality, you know. Information isn't gonna like cause automatic transformation. It isn't a transformative thing in and of itself, unfortunately. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. On this note, here's some information. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's more like a, tri- a tribute to Mike Davis. Yeah, no. <laughs> and my youth. <laughs> when I was tribute super. to Mike Davis and my youth, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like next time, I'm not going to promise, but most likely we'll do something on Trauma Zone. Yeah, we're going to do yeah, on Adam Curtis's new uh, monster multi-episode documentary on YouTube. the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah. yeah, Basically, trauma porn, collapse porn. Well, we'll cover that. We'll, yeah. All right. Okay. Um, have a good, have yeah. a good day. No information with that organization. No more information for you until you get organized. <laughs>
Okay, bye. All right, bye. Hello, Michael. Hello, do you hear me? Yeah. Yes, I oh, can hear you. Great. Yeah, so um, this is a, as I said, this is a Russian language magazine, right? That is published in Moscow. The next issue is going to be about poverty, so that's what I would like to ask you about. Uh, just first of all, would you please actually define poverty? Because it seems like it's been perceived actually very different across cultures, let's say in Russia and America. Well, I think that the definition of poverty that best corresponds to the International Declaration of Human Rights and to the traditional views of uh, the left around the world and you know also many religious groups is that poverty is the the absence of any of the necessary resources for full human development uh, not only to lead a healthy and, and dignified life mm-hmm. but to have the capacity to contribute you know creatively to uh, you know one's community you know uh, one's world you put that in a nutshell and most people on earth need a job that makes them feel good about themselves. They need a, a job that makes them feel that they're doing something, you know, socially useful and important and allows them to support or contribute to the support of the family that can enjoy all the, you know, the minimal things that we associate, not with a high standard of consumption. Mm-hmm but with high quality of life, and that also includes, you know, a, a leisure time. But I, I truly believe that the, the single greatest crisis on Earth around which all the other crises revolve uh, is the question of employment. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you realize that, let's say, in America, like a, a poor family can still have two cars and like a house. <laughs> and let's say in Russia, India, it's completely different. It's just kind of interesting to think about that. That's the systematic confusion that exists between quality of life and standard living on one hand mm-hmm. and consumption on the other. And there's simply not a, uh, you know, equivalent. And of course, there's a huge literature and, you know, innumerable studies to, you know, to back this up in terms of what actually makes people happy, what gives people dignity, allows people to engage in some kind of, uh, you know, creative, you know, labor. And, uh, of course, poverty is always, you know, relative. And, you know, it may be in one society you gauge poverty by how many calories a day are available in your diet. And in another society like this, it may be whether you have uh, uh, access to cable TV or not. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. It is relative. If I'm not mistaken, you used to be actually a truck driver. You're not just just a lofty academic who writing about third world countries. No, I wouldn't even characterize myself primarily as an academic. I've been mm-hmm. a political activist since I was mm-hmm. 16, and I grew up in a 
very ordinary, very traditional uh, trade union family. My father was a meat cutter. So in this regard, do you think that poverty in the post-industrial you know, society is very different from the poverty of the developing countries? No. In fact, you know, the most obvious trend in the world today is that the, the poverty of advanced countries is becoming more like the poverty of uh, the so-called developing countries. Mm-hmm. Now, the issue here is, and this is something I've had some fights about with kids I know who were in the Occupy movement, mm-hmm. it's not a question of the distribution of wealth. Yes. It's not a question of the distribution of income. Mm-hmm. It's a question of economic power and that being able to make you know, decisions uh, about you know, where people's resources and you know, historic labor you know, is invested, whether or not you know, the plant closes uh, uh, down. And I think that what defines the current world and what is unique in terms of traditional social theory, whether liberal or Marxist, is that no one anticipated the emergence of a huge class of people on a global basis who are basically surplus to the world economy, the informal working class, at least a billion and a half uh, people, and not all of them in in poor countries or, or the developing world. And they're not simply unemployed. They're not simply migrants to the city who haven't yet had their you know, opportunity to, you know, rise out of this, you know, the slum. They are just structurally redundant. Their labor is not necessary to the reproduction of, uh, uh, you know, the economy, the world economy that's controlled by about a thousand, uh, you know, great corporations. And nobody predicted this, you know, not Marx, not Weber. And certainly not any of the, you know, liberal social democratic thinkers of the New Deal era, or mm-hmm. even the 1960s. The fact that on such an unprecedented and almost unimaginable basis, mm-hmm. the decision-making about the whole earth, you know, about who works and who doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, what's produced, what's not, uh, it's now become so concentrated beyond any kind of public, uh, you know, vigilance mm-hmm. that you created a global economy that's tailored almost completely to the short-term needs of, you know, the, you know, the financial, uh, you know, the, you know, the big banks and the financial elite. And, and this is an interesting question in itself, because in countries, say Germany classically, mm-hmm. where economic power in society is held by big companies and middle companies, but they're industrial companies, and they have this serious uh, investment in the preservation uh, and the reproduction uh, of the physical plan and skills. You know, in keeping the real economy uh, together, and one of the things that's happened in the United States and in other countries all over the uh, world is that ceased to be the logic of capital. The logic of capital is to produce the highest profits possible for a class of people mm-hmm. whose goal is to consume as much of the good things of the earth as they possibly can in their own lifetimes and leave nothing behind. 
<laughs> yeah, I actually recently read this um, research. It's pretty gnarly from 2010 that. Speaking of America, people under 35, it's kind of like new poverty. People under 35, their net worth, I mean, just average person. Well, I mean, you're, is you're, like you're dealing with yeah. a generation now of educated people whose futures have essentially been looted. Yes. Uh, you know, in, a, in, you know, in advance. And, you know, everyone hopes that, you know, still clings to beliefs in the kind of, you know, miracle software economy, the startup economy, the, uh, you know, the, the turn of the millennia. But all the economic trends go against the, the creation of, you know, jobs to absorb not just the, you know, the high school educated, the, you know, the manual working class, which should become, you know, so obsolete in this country, mm-hmm. but, you know, even the college educated. And they now have this, you know, marginalized, casualized status in the economy, um, you know, just as their counterparts do in the, uh, you know, the Arab world or Mediterranean, uh, 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 Europe, Latin America. I mean, the only country in the world which is dynamically expanding, uh, has dynamically expanded its workforce and its product making uh, economies, of course, you know, China. China, yeah, of course. <laughs> so China comes in a way closer to Das Kapital and, the, you know, the vision of the future. Uh, Held by you know socialists and and you know and Marxists, but if you look at the developing world, what you see is you know outside of the countries that are immediately attached to the Chinese mm-hmm. and and Japanese economies, you know like Vietnam and so on. But if you look at Latin America or Southern Africa, what you see is deindustrialization, just like in the United States. This mm-hmm. is you know what's happening in Belo Horizonte or. Uh, Port Elizabeth or, you know, uh, you know, Johannesburg, and to the extent that these economies have weathered uh, the storm so far, it's only been because of the dynamism of China and the growth of, uh, you know, resource industries. Resource industries that don't create a lot of jobs and in which in some ways put these countries back in their traditional position of being, you know, commodity suppliers. Yeah, yeah. colonials. I mean, you know, look at look at Brazil. I mean, Brazil's hugely, you know, dynamic society, capable of doing almost anything. But its boom has uh, been driven uh, by its commodity exports, mm-hmm. not by selling airplanes or computers. So would you say that developing countries are in fact subdued into neo-colonialism with this, I mean, from what I noticed, with this like kind of pretense of like environmental issues, you know, UN, whatever, like stop them from developing by putting limits on their energy consumption and stuff like that, while developed countries actually don't really limit their energy consumption, right? I mean, there's just no question that the, you know, the huge future costs of climate and environmental change will fall upon people who are the least responsible for creating the problem. Exactly. Uh, you know, in the first place. And of course, 
you know, what has tended to happen over the course of the whole history of the uh, capitalist world economy is that the next generation nations, the catch-up nations, find that the rules have entirely changed when it comes to their turn. Okay, so that the British are telling everybody else, no, you have to have free trade and open, you know, markets. You can't protect your uh, industries, which was in fact what Germany and the United States had to do, and what all the, uh, you know, the countries of the third world. I mean, here's the United States, which is, you know, for a century lived off oil, which. Still, has mortgaged its future to, you know, you know, fossil fuels, and we're dictating uh, conditions to the Chinese. And there's no way that, you know, doesn't look entirely, uh, you know, self-serving. But the point is, my my real point is just this: that the mechanisms for creating jobs, formal jobs, full-time jobs, wage jobs, jobs that exist within. Uh, you know, the formal world economy, those mechanisms uh, simply aren't there. And what you've seen in the last 20 years is the vast majority of jobs in, in urban Africa, for instance, and the majority of jobs in Latin America as well, have been created in the informal sector. And the informal sector, in some ways, is simply a euphemism for unemployment. Mm-hmm. Unemployed people who have no choice but to go out and, you know, create survival by, you know, one means or not. And international organizations like the World Bank and so on have for a long time been celebrating this as the kind of heroism of the slum bootstraps, uh, uh, capitalism, uh, slums of despair turning into slums of hope. Mm-hmm. In other words, they've accepted the fact that the urban poor having managed to survive, uh, you know, the darkest years of the 1980s and the, you know, the dead crisis mm-hmm. can go on creating their own housing and jobs informally. Uh, and this is, I tried to point out in a book called Planet of Slums. Yeah. It's, it's a very dangerous myth because you go to any uh, large poor city, even an industrialized city like you know Johannesburg, say, and you look at the informal labor markets and you see people struggling in a very limited range of, of occupations. And so every migrant from the countryside or every kid born in, in, in the slum added to that competition and at the end of the day, finally, there, you know, there are too many rickshaw wallows. There are too many people going through the scraps. There are too many maids. There are too many part-time casual labor. And I, I believe that this is part of the mechanism, uh, you know, behind the rise in big cities around the world of identity politics, of sectarian groups using whatever identity it is, you know, religious, linguistic, racial, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't matter, using that to exclude other people from competition. Isn't it because of the, like, unleashed neoliberal policies? When neoliberalism was that after the Western banks 
had lent all this money, usually to undemocratic rulers or, or, or dictators, and encouraged countries to make these huge investments. Mm-hmm. And of course, austerity was imposed, and countries had to pay their own way out. And the way to do that, and you know, the essence of the Washington consensus was by drastic reduction of their public sectors yeah. and uh, you know their welfare policies and the result uh, you know is you know was catastrophic in, in the 1980s at the very point that on some continents where urban populations were going faster than they were in the industrial revolution in Europe mm-hmm. I mean we're increasing at unprecedented rates uh, public services of, of you know of every kind, and public investment uh, in schools and housing and infrastructure was at the same time shrinking. That's you know the miracle that- of the 80s that people somehow managed to uh, survive uh, despite that. But the damage. Uh, <laughs> The damage, by and large, hasn't been done. And in the cases where you have had real progress, and Brazil's truly the most important, uh, a lot of it has been financed you know, by its huge trade surpluses in, in commodities. I mean, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the minimum income now, uh, uh, provided in, in Brazil to the poor, the so-called, you know, bolsas, are really financed by uh, the growth and surpluses created in commodity markets. Uh, Brazil's manufacturing sector hasn't grown. It's, in fact, in, you know, in crisis. So any way you look at it, you circle back to this, uh, you know, a problem that we have, you know, almost infinite unfilled needs that we need people to... Uh, to provide, to be educated, to do, but at the same time, you're living in a world economy which has truly ceased to to create jobs, uh, you know, or futures for people. And as I say, I believe this is not so much uh, the outcome of economic inequality. It's a fundamental question of economic. uh, power, the ability to prevent the factory from uh, closing down, the ability to, uh, you know, tax the middle classes and in, in, in the rich uh, to pay for schools and in, in poor cities and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so part of the solution is the tax on their uber rich, which which should be way higher than it is, let's say now, in most countries. I mean, in America for sure. In, you know, in more advanced countries, higher taxes, the return to the kind of levels of uh, taxation and, and, and government investment and jobs and so on that characterize the, uh, you know, the West during the Cold War, say, uh, would do a lot. It would be a big improvement, but it doesn't get at the, at the real problem, which is that, you know, traditional social theory, and again, whether, you know, Marxist or liberal, you know, envision an industrial economy, you know, continually creating, uh, you know, more jobs with uh, uh, wealth, and that's simply no longer the case. And that's, as yeah. I say, a kind mm-hmm. of unprecedented problem, and I've had 
some very interesting conversations in, in, in the last few years. For instance, with the U.S. Naval War College, uh, which is in Newport, uh, Rhode Island, and it's where uh, officers basically get a postgraduate education in the American Navy. And uh, the uh, head of the Naval War College is an admiral who commanded a, the fleet in the Persian Gulf during the invasion, the first invasion of Afghanistan, invited me to speak there. And I told him, you know, I can't do that, but agreed that when he came out to San Diego, we'd get together. So I spent an afternoon drinking beer with him. And I was rather astonished. They, they're already thinking about uh, post-globalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, they understand uh, the, the problems of big, poor cities in a way that few people in the foreign policy establishment do. And they do that because they now know that this is, as they call it, you know, their their future, you know, battle space. And in particular, what he was concerned to ask me about is that the U.S. Navy is the really the only force in the world that can go into an emergency situation, a disaster, and bring the infrastructure of a equivalent to to a major city with it. But the Navy. He feared that maybe wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, address as many crises as uh, uh, would occur. And he, you know, wanted to know, you know, what the future would would uh, be like. Then would the U.S. turn its back? Would basically engage in the kind of triage? But- and then this month, I was invited to the Vatican where the Vatican University is having a seminar apparently in, in December on my book, you know, and these same issues. And, um, you know, if you listen to, to the new Pope, I mean, you know, he's just spent a lifetime in the slums of supervising priests in the slums of, you know, of Buenos Aires. The, the, the first thing he says, his first, you know, priority is, uh, you know, employment as a human right. And there's no way you're going to solve any other crisis, including the, you know, <laughs> global warming. Uh, but um, actually, do, do you, though, tie, I wonder, I don't know, do, do you tie partly the spread of poverty and the, the lack of infrastructure and the whole decline of the kind of social system, let's say, in America or in developed countries with the collapse of Soviet Union that, you know, since a socialist ideology kind of lost and that allowed capitalism to, you know, unleash neoliberal policies? I mean, of course, I mean, the... Cold War created a situation where both sides had to proclaim that their interest was to advance all humanity exactly. to, you know, some level of, of, of well good life. You know, yeah. your your five year plan, our alliance mm-hmm. for progress. Mm-hmm. The minute the Cold War ended and and the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm-hmm. There's no longer any reason to think about the fate of the whole planet. Not really. (laughs) There's no longer any competition for, you know, hearts and minds. And there's no longer the fear that, you know, disturbances and disorder are going to create a a different and antagonistic kind of uh, society on a global scale. 
actually, um, uh, what I want to ask you is, again, about your book, The Planet of Slums. You seem to focus on urban poverty. Is it that different from, like, rural poverty or... No, rural you... poverty is, is, in a way, the, the, the great issue. And one of the most disturbing things is going on right now and thinking about all these problems is the belief that... You know, you just have to surrender the countryside, and that somehow cities will will rescue people. Mm-hmm. I mean, the majority of poor people in the world are still, you know, in the countryside of the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But increasingly, they fall into these novel social groups: people who neither integrated into the city or the or the rural economy, people who work part time in the urban economy, part time as farm laborers. Uh, smallholders, you know, can't earn a living on the land and mm-hmm. desperately seek other, uh, you know, other occupations. I mean, the crisis of the global countryside uh, is kind of passed by silently uh, in the night, and uh, nobody who's writing about urban issues, you know, seems to understand that, um, you know, rural poverty and the condition of, uh, uh, you know, rural society mm-hmm. is actually the single biggest urban problem. Mm-hmm. But uh, what, what do you exactly mean by, like, urbanization without urbanity when you talk about slums, right? That's, that's what you mean by I'm, that? I'm sorry, urbanization uh-huh. without what? Urbanity. Well, I mean, you know, traditionally, uh, migrants came to the cities, say, from Murcia and southern Spain, and they immigrated to, you know, migrated to Barcelona or something, and they swelled the slums of the city, but they were still integrated into the the culture of the city and had access to, uh, you know, its spaces. I mean, in a way, in a couple of senses, not in a way it's the whole history, you know, of the labor movement and, and uh, you know, in Western Europe and the United States. But the problem is now that, you know, more and more people, probably even a majority of the urban poor, in so many countries, they don't live within the uh, traditional city. They live in, you know, slum uh, peripheries, horizontal cities built out 20, 30, 40 miles from uh, the center. And every year, uh, governments in the developing world, whether it's for the Olympics, the World Cup, or just simply the clear space for speculation, you know, are deporting essentially, evicting tens and hundreds of thousands of, you know, traditional urban board or urban working class mm-hmm. to the periphery. And the periphery has none of the historic institutions of uh, of urban life. I mean, it's impoverished in a, you know, a particularly kind of existential way. And in the book, I use the example of these young Moroccan kids who, oh, it's been almost a decade, I guess, came into Casablanca and attacked a, I think, a Jewish restaurant, a travel agency, a hotel, you know, the bomb. They were almost all killed. A couple survived, and they were interrogated. And they'd grown up entirely in the outskirts of Casablanca. It's the first time they'd ever seen the center of the city. And they were absolutely incredulous at how wealthy it seemed, uh, you know, to them. So there's a very large group of human beings who, you know, 
you know, are caught in a way in a you know in a kind of third place between the traditional institutions of the stable institutions of the countryside and the traditional institutions and opportunities mm-hmm. of of the city and the navy people I talk to and the military intellectuals that I read or know this is what they're truly focused on they're focused on these slum peripheries and some cities the the governments themselves don't know how many people are out there how they live you know where uh, you know where they are mm-hmm. uh, you know you look at Cairo or something and you, you ask yourself you know where's the, the, the Islamist you know real political strength well it's you know it's in the outer cities and slums of uh, you know of Cairo and that's true every everywhere in the world and it's uh, often you know a radical disconnection from the traditional sources of socialization and education yet at the same time people aren't living in caves everybody has a satellite dish or the store in the corner has a television set so everybody's perfectly aware of what how the rest of the world lives and yeah. how you know, they should live. But the main question that bothers me is, don't you think, though, that the, the scarcity of resources is artificial, actually? We kind of made believe, I don't know, by experts, whoever, economists, that, you know, the resources are scarce, and so a bunch of people will be poor, and that's kind of almost sort of natural state. But in a way, it's not. No, I mean, we, you know, we have all the resources to realize, you know, human dreams and adapt ourselves to, you know, the new environments we're going to be living in. I mean, I don't think there's any uh, question about that. Same time, we have the means to turn the next three and a half billion human beings uh, who will arrive in my children's lifetimes. So probably the maximum build out of the human species will occur in probably around 2016 and so on. Uh, you know, we can get them the means to become the solution for the planet. Or, you know, you know, we can treat them, you know, treat them as a, you know, a problem. We can take the position of, uh, uh, of, of Malthus. I mean, I think the, the environment, a, a lot of the environmentalists are right when they say that, you know, the Earth can't support a planet where everybody has an American standard of, of, of consumption, then jump to the conclusion uh, that population uh, is the very essence of the problem, and it's not. Uh, but we have to imagine a different kind of quality of life and a different form of consumption, and I've argued that, in a way, you know, cities answer that question because, you know, you may have a private swimming pool, but it will never be as enjoyable as a big public swimming pool or a bath. Your private library will never be anything like the, you know, the New York Public Library and, and, and so on. And in the 1920s, when everything was scarce and universal austerity uh, in the Soviet Union, this is, of course, the approach that the constructivists and others uh, you know took 
to create, you know, palaces of, of labor with movie theaters and, you know, and gyms and so on and, you know, and, and libraries because they're unable to construct enough apartments for anybody else. But at least while people were waiting to be housed before they even had minimal housing, you know, here was a tool to culture and, 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 and recreation. In other words, the, the elements of a vision of a different kind of life that's based on social consumption, you know, collective consumption, that reduces drastically the environmental footprint, but raises qualitatively. Mm-hmm. I wonder, by the way, speaking of poverty and the whole class war, have you watched the recent movie Elysium? No, I haven't. Uh, it's just weirdly about actually uh, healthcare and the class war in the year artificial scarcity of resources. Anyway, I, I, I wonder what you thought. Um, so, com- coming back to the rhetoric of overpopulation, what is it about? Do you think it's like about power and control? Why it's even been like, talked about all the time? I remember, I don't know, even 10 years ago, I was like... Uh, I don't know, in the sixth grade, seventh grade or something. And I already remember like overpopulation was a huge thing. And since it's not, you don't believe in it. And uh, who actually pushes it through, like academics, like experts, who, who benefits from it? Well, I mean, overpopulation, you know, provides the, the best excuse for uh, their refusal to exercise human solidarity to come to other people's mm-hmm. uh, aids. It provides the best political cover possible not to act on behalf of, you know, poor countries or or poor classes. And of course mm-hmm. it brings with it you know, brings back the whole you know, the whole apparatus of uh, late eighteenth century, early nineteenth century, you know, thinking about poverty and the undeserving poor and the inability of the poor to control populations and you know it naturalizes and makes these these facts acceptable I mean actually the population problem uh, is, is quite fascinating it's not the number of people it's the location of people so that West Africa where poverty above all dictates having larger families and more people who you know uh, you know, can work or, you know, take care of their elders. You know, West Africa, you know, truly is going to have a population crisis, but at the same time, I mean, well, you know, you know, Russia, uh, you know, you know, shrinking Japan, Western Europe, and perhaps most surprising of all is the Chinese have been so successful with their one-child program that in five or six years, suddenly the Chinese workforce is going to start uh, shrinking. The Chinese mm-hmm. are going to have the same kind of problem of of an age skew, too many old people, not enough, you know, young workers. Uh, the countries like Japan and Italy have, but they're going to have it in, you know, in a much, you know, in in a much faster way. So the point is that, you know, the logical and natural solution to this is to allow labor to move where labor is needed. Um, you know, where old people need to be uh, uh, taken care of. But there's, you know, lots of jobs and, and, and 
you know, in health services, for example. But this is my reading, actually, of the whole immigration and, 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 and borders crisis, that either in this next century we'll see the creation of some kind of uh, uh, human citizenship or earth citizenship with, you know, the free movement of labor. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you know, we face, you know, nightmares. Labor has to be able to uh, to move and under conditions, you know, something better than the, you know, the servitude of most um you know, migrant laborers or undocumented immigrants today. Mm -hmm. yeah. The the age skews between countries are just unprecedented, and and they were also uh, unforeseen. Uh, the demographic patterns that emerged. Mm -hmm. But in I mean, Russia is going to shrink by what forty percent. It, yeah, it is. It is definitely shrinking. So there's no no overpopulation there. But again, speaking of the causes of poverty, uh, how come that all of a sudden huge, I don't know, multinational corporations all of a sudden rally for the help to the poor or help to like, the environment, uh, which is kind of all tied together? Is it about just um, uh, not decreasing again the levels of consumption in America? Like, of course mm -hmm. not, but it's, it's, it's understanding the difference between levels of consumption and standards of, of living and quality of life. Uh, you know, even in the advanced countries, I mean, Americans consume immeasurably more per capita than most Scandinavians. And I don't think anybody would disagree that, you know, every poll that's ever been done finds that Scandinavians tend to be happier and more, you know, satisfied in, in, in life than, uh, you know, than most Americans. You can exist on a fairly low level of consumption as long as you're fed, you're healthy, you have, uh, you know, some kind of role that gives you, you know, uh, dignity, that you have your basic needs met. Uh, I mean, I sometimes suggest the uh, analog of a university. You go to university, you don't mind living in a, so much living in a dorm. You know, when you have great libraries and recreational spaces, you're surrounded by beauty. And above all, you have, you know, kind of infinite opportunities to interact effectively or erotically with, you know, uh, people your, your own age. In a way, universities are a kind of model of what... Uh, the Soviet Union was attempting to do in the 20s, you know, to combine minimal, you know, you know, minimal standards of, of, of decent housing with public luxury and and high quality education. Mm -hmm. And of course, that dream came to an end in the late, uh, you know, 20s with Stalin. But it remains, I think, one of the most important. Uh, social experiments through the 20th century. Of course. And, um, yeah, now it's all <laughs> gone anyway. I, I just, uh, for a second, just to come back to your, your outlook on the on the immigration, actually how certain big business interests are involved, right? How, who actually bring these people and who wants to pay them almost nothing in comparison to what well, they have I to think, pay. Well, I think that, you know, kind of traditionally well understood in certain parts of the country, you know, here in the Southwest, uh, you know, anybody who 
takes an interest easily understands how uh, agriculture works. The differences over the last generation is the extent to which the middle class in places like Southern California has become dependent on immigrant labor, partially as a result of the fact that, you know, women, the majority of mothers are now, you know, bread earners and people are working longer, mm-hmm. you know, combined hours. But in a way, it's kind of like a return to uh, Victorian society. I mean, my mother were alive and mm-hmm. The whole idea of somebody else, uh, you know, mowing the lawn or washing the dishes or doing the laundry, other than her and her, you know, uh, kids, she would have been uh, shocked out of her, you know, uh, mind. That's a world that supposedly, you know, ended decades before, and now it's been uh, restored. And if you look, you know, particularly in the Southwest, it's it's very much how the middle class lives across Latin America and the way that it takes that kind of cheap labor, uh, you know, for granted. Now, as a matter of fact, I mean, it just... So it is like a, a kind of like a broad consensus. It's not really about just corporation or big business. Well, it makes... People it actually makes, like it. It makes, yeah. it makes, you know, you know, an increasingly larger group of people mm-hmm. become, you know, complicit yeah. uh, in the use of cheap service labor and keeping it cheap. You know, even the people who provide it often are hiring somebody to take care of their own kids <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and paying it less. But it's not just the, you know, the, the unhealthy or unattractive quality of human relations that's involved. Mm-hmm. But the point is that if you look at the economy in Southern California right now, as the last big aircraft plant is, is closing down right now in, in, in um, you know, Long Beach, the economy is capitalized on on not on living wages, it's capitalized on, uh, you know, the working poor. That is that most small businesses now, uh, even the ritziest restaurants, you know, their business plan is to survive by paying waiters and busboys and cooks only yeah. so much. And that 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 is a huge problem for the economy as a whole because those poverty wages don't generate demand or create as many jobs uh, as they should. And at the yeah. level of small businesses, which become more and more important mm-hmm. in the economy, the turnover rate is... is you know, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's the highest creation of small businesses yeah. in the country and the highest rate of annihilation of uh, of small businesses. So you, you have a retrogressive economy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, you know, see this firsthand because I teach at a campus uh, where very many of our students, you know, the sons and daughters of, of these people, the first generation trying to get a, you know, a foothold in college, and just to hear kids' tales of what's happened to their families since, you know, 2008. Uh, most of the net wealth of African Americans and Latinos in the United States was destroyed mm-hmm. in 2008. Statistic most people don't uh, uh, realize. People lost their you know their equity and their and and their savings the wealth on the side of the white side and the white middle class uh 
you know, took a much, much smaller, almost insignificant uh, hit. So all the progress that immigrants make, okay, it's still vulnerable. It's precarious. And mm -hmm. that's true in any country that, uh, you know, depends on cheap immigrant labor and sets in place structures that make it difficult for people to, you know, organize or increase their, uh, uh, you know, wages or job mobility. But even I mean, immigration reform, it's about accepting the inequality between, yeah. you know, strata of, of labor. And, of course, businesses want immigration reform. Mm -hmm. But what they don't want are people given, you know, rights uh, or any kind of resource to organize themselves and raise wages of course. Uh, in the economy. And in, you know, an advanced society like this, when you start to grow such a large sector of, of the working poor and low wages and so on, I mean, that's, that's regression. Yeah. By the way, has, speaking of the working poor, isn't it like kind of ironic, like linguistically, that, you know, the working poor? I mean, if you look, you know, uh, you know, read Dickens or yeah, I know, did. Friedrich Engels on, on yeah. industrial England. I mean, most of the poor were were workers, yeah. and many of them were were factory workers. But the difference between that situation and poverty in developing countries today is those workers could potentially organize mm -hmm. and raise wages and raise demand and even win a middle-class standard uh, of living. They were working the most productive, you know, advanced factories in the world, first in England and then in the United States, mm -hmm. in Germany. But it's very different when you're in an economy mm -hmm. which doesn't have, which isn't creating either middle class jobs or increasingly dependent on things like service industries yeah. and sweaty trades and so on. That's a trap. That's, yeah. You know, it's an economic and social trap. Extremely difficult to get out of. Yeah, Terry Michael, I have just a few more questions. Hello, do you hear me? I'm sorry. Yeah. Your opinion on the this one way of fighting poverty, right, that the first world sort of came up with is microfinancing, but with a huge interest rates and it really just kind of a new way of enslaving people. What, what do you think about it? Yeah, I actually, the guy who invented it, I was, um, I, I was uh, just turned down an invitation to speak with him at the Vatican. But look, wow. there have been two big ideas about mm -hmm. how the poor can help themselves. You know, uh, one was the idea that if you give people title mm -hmm. to their squatter shacks, they can use it as collateral, <laughs> and suddenly all this capital will come into existence. Mm -hmm. And the other was, you know, micro-entrepreneurship. Now, both these... Both these ideas are, are good to the extent that, yes, people should have title. And, you know, small loans without, you know, loan shark interest rates, you know, but small loans at, at, at normal rates, of course it's a good idea. But neither of them produce miracles. The study of what uh, titling, uh, you know, informal housing in Latin America which actually was originally demand of the love. It, it's produced disappointingly uh, little mobility or, or mobilized much fewer resources than imagined. And of course, with microcredit now, what's happened is all the banks have moved into microcredit. 
Mm-hmm. So is it like is it some kind of conspiracy? What what is like what is going on? No, it's 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 a market. I mean, the microcredit thing actually has existed for forever, in the form of immigrants get together in large groups, mm-hmm. and they save money, and they loan it to each other. Uh, you know, at low interest. Uh, this was taking the idea a step uh, further and systematizing it. But there are two problems with it. I mean, one problem is that the chances for micro entrepreneurs to succeed are very small. Yeah, Some and the interest and we, rate. We, the we, interest rate is frequently like I don't know, forty percent. No, I mean interest yeah. rates for if if you're a poor person, interest rates are like uh, very high. In a mafia movie or something. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, uh, and the whole idea of microcredit, you know, was to lend at the same rates that you would say to the middle class or the mm-hmm. homeowner, but lend them in small units to people to enable them to buy a sewing machine or afford a school tuition. But of all, I'll put it into some kind of protected use, you know, a tool, something to improve a business. And that's a very good idea, but the, the, the problem is there are way too many people competing in these limited uh, niches, and it doesn't solve the fundamental prob- you know, problem of, of the nature of the occupations, the jobs, the level of competition. The other side of it is that once this proved its success, now banks all over the world have have turned to it because, you know, banking becomes more and more, you know, productive the less you need people, the more you can rely on on computers. And they've discovered, in fact, that, you know, lending 50 here, 200 there uh, turns over, you know, a profit, and they're in a much better position uh, uh, to do that. I mean, to be honest with you, these are the most effective credit system problem in the world is in the Islamic countries. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the Koran, Koran you know, uh, uh, you know, doesn't allow, uh, uh, Usury. you know, so the Muslim banks actually do, you know, a much better job of that, but it isn't obviously, it's, you know, it, 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 it's not changing societies in the way yeah. that uh, is often claimed. I mean, they're just, you know, there are no Deus Ex Machinas, you know, no miracles, there are no magic no. Uh, uh, bullets to change societies without changing the structure of power and wealth in them. That's the essential question. All this stuff is based on the premise that, you know, you know, poor people can become successful capitalists or something. <laughs> yeah, uh, like businessmen, like poor people can become. Else. Yeah, as if poor people can all be like small businessmen. It's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Also, another way of fighting poverty is considered charity, right? Everyone praises like rich people, you know, engaging in charity. But in fact, those like charities been implemented through seem to be the uh, tax exempt bodies just formed by the rich to dispense their wealth. I don't know, according to like their political taste. So it is not really selfless at all. Like it, it is not really a solution. I don't know. How do you look at it? You know, it's a full return to the robber baron era. I mean, you know, Andrew Carnegie uh, built wonderful libraries in poor neighborhoods, you know, all over Europe and the United States. God mm-hmm. bless him for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but he shot his own workers down when they attempted to uh, demand high, higher wages. I mean, charity has been tried again and again. In the early depression in this country, there was a two-year period where this was going to be the solution, okay? Mm-hmm. Neighbors were going to help neighbors. We're going to use charity, mm-hmm. you know, churches. And it utterly failed to deal with the problems of the the early depression. What it does now is it covers up the the, the, the decline, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the recession in public investment. So, you know, Bill Gates uh, is going to invent, uh, you know, a vaccine for malaria. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad Bill Gates is spending some <laughs> of his money on, on public health. But people think, oh, well, you know, the problem is solved. This is how to deal with it. Yeah. And of course, the real problem is that pharmaceutical companies don't produce vaccines or invest in research for you know poor people's diseases. And you know the federal spending on these programs is you know declined drastically. So you know beyond the ideology of it, it, it you know it's been tried forever and never works. And as you say. Uh, it also produces major benefits for uh, you know uh, you know for the rich. I mean, there are probably a zillion people in this country who have some little charity that's just a uh, tax evasion, dentist, yeah. and so on. You know, and it's yeah. a cover up to and, and of course the poor don't want a charity. People yeah. want their old old jobs back. They want to see that factory in town open again or be replaced by something that provides as many decent jobs, uh, uh, you know, for the children. That's what everybody wants. Yeah. And and it's kind of unreachable, right? It's politically unachievable. Unachievable. Now, because there's nobody actually advocating real solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the Democratic Party, um, the Democratic Party still utterly controls the state of West Virginia. But a Democratic presidential candidate hasn't won a, uh, an election there in, in, in years. And the reason is very clear. They, you know, uh, they go to West Virginia and they're talking high tech this or that. And what West Virginia, which is a state most dependent on mining, steel, and heavy industries, when they ask them about jobs, they have absolutely. Uh, you know, nothing to say. There's no political part in the United States uh, which is dealing with questions anymore of full employment, of the concentration of economic power, uh, of questions of, you know, of free trade, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and so on. Uh, the Democratic Party relies on the labor movement to be elected. But the Obama administration, you know, the, the Democrats do the, uh, the minimal on, on questions of, of, of civil rights, you know, uh, they're good on questions of immigration. But when it comes to hardcore questions like the fate of the banks, yeah. you, know, you bail out Wall Street. Yeah, of course. Even, and once upon a yeah. time in this country, in the 1930s, for instance, you know, Alternatives like that did exist, not only in the Democratic Party, but you had progressive Republicans who were the very leadership of the anti-monopoly movement uh, in this country. I mean, the Democratic Party today is 
ideologically about the same place as uh, as Republican the Republican Party. Yeah, politics is depoliticizing people in this country on almost unimaginable uh, scale. Um, I teach a big class on journalism. I get a sometimes more than a hundred students. Never does any single one of them read a newspaper. Uh, very, very few are interested in politics, and I, you know, and I understand the reason. Uh, you know, all the talk about empowerment and you know, and 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 so on, and uh, you know, the world is duplicitous and corrupt and. You know, spying at you. Uh, you know, look. You know, looking at you in all kinds of invisible ways. You know, who wants to be political? It would change if there were an equivalent, a progressive equivalent, say, to the Tea Party. Tea Party is very interesting because it shows what a a discipline. Uh, and very principled minority can do uh, in this case. Yeah, but <laughs> you know, Tea Party, bring, but bring tea, government to the edge of collapse. Sure, but Tea Party has been, you know, kind of sponsored by huge billionaires, as of you know. Of course, it, although it is a real Grassroot. problem because the big corporations are used to the Republican Party. <laughs> You know, acting out their orders. Mm-hmm. Now find a weird situation where there's enough of these independent billionaires uh, that Tea Party types can run for office and not worry about wow. being financially, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, punished. So in some ways, the uh, you know the Chamber of Commerce and National Association of Manufacturers. Uh, you know, have lost control over the party, mm-hmm. and the only logical thing for them to do is for more of them to, you know, move closer to the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. What about Occupy movement? That is like briefly. the Occupy movement. Yeah. Uh, well, it was, you know, in very inspiring, particularly when it started popping up in places like my wife and I, for instance, joined Occupy El Centro. Do you know where El Centro is? Uh, no. It, it's a farm town out in the middle of uh, Imperial oh. County near, oh, near Arizona. Okay. So when Occupy El Centro popped up, this was a real measure of, of, of the potential, the possibilities that existed there. But the Occupy movement had no plan and strategy for organizing people. They had a demonstration in uh, my campus, mm-hmm. uh, which was the most militant demonstration since uh, the, you know the 60s. It was great. But nobody handed out a leaflet. Nobody handed out a leaflet that said, here's the next step. We're, we're having a meeting next Thursday night. Mm-hmm. You know, it just came and went, and some people lived in tents for a week, uh, and 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 left. And for someone who's a veteran of the civil rights movement and of an era when organizing people and you know and reaching ordinary people and you know workers, GIs, you know guys on the street and stuff, you know organizing was a categorical. Uh, you know, imperative, and I and I just realized that you know this had become so self-contained, and it just had no ability to think strategically, to go to the next step, or to offer people 
you know, simply advice. What do we do next now that we've had this uh, uh, demonstration? They, they were actually raided, you know, like, I don't know, in Los Angeles, it was pretty, actually, pretty Oh, yeah, I mean, they uh, were pressed. And, 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 yeah. no, no, and no, they no. were taken I mean, seriously, so it's not like they had a chance for another step. They were, <laughs> like, 300 people but, were imprisoned, you know. But even if they weren't, uh, you know, repressed, it yeah. was very unlikely uh, that anything would come out of it. Now, the alternative is just turn your eyes northward and look at what happened in Montreal, where you had a movement that poured 100,000 people in the streets. <clears throat> it started off like Occupy. Mm-hmm. But it had a strategy, it had the participation of, of organized groups that was fully as radical as Occupy was. And at the end of the day, uh, it won. You know, it started off at the issue of, you know, uh, tuitions and then grew into, you know, a much bigger movement about, uh, you know, rights and, and, and equalities. Okay. And it was utterly unreported in New York Times or the LA Times. I spoke, I, I, I was speaking at a forum with Angela Davis, uh, mm-hmm. uh, whenever that was, a couple of years ago. And I, I asked her what she thought about it. And she said, I hadn't heard about it. <laughs> and Angela's not somebody who's usually out of touch with, with world news. And I realized, yeah, I guess it's, you know. If you're not a strange person like me who, you know, checks the Canadian press before I go to bed at night, uh, you wouldn't know anything about it. And it's too bad because that was the model movement. You know, yeah. you know that had the kind of expertise and experience to balance, you know, grassroots democracy and some sense of strategy and a plan for, um, you know, for growing. And yeah. Occupy simply didn't have those qualities. Yeah. I see. You know, uh, this this kind of alternative, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you know, vision. When it becomes totally self-contained, like so much of the kind of the kids of the left are today, and the Occupy people, uh, it's just having no effect on the on you know on the larger world. It's a way of you know, being true to your personal ethics, but it's not helping anybody else. Unless it becomes something that people can, yeah. you know, emulate and under, uh, you know, understand and struggle for. I, I mean, as you've obviously guessed in the course of this interview, uh, I basically believe that the historic left has died, that you're going to have to reinvent it.